I remember from a really young age realizing that everyone around me think that I was a boy. And I'm saying it in that way because people ask me, oh, when did you realize that you identify as a girl? And I'm like, that's the wrong question. Because I never realized I'm identifying as a girl. My realization was that everyone around me thinks that I'm a boy. In a, some twisted way, the silver lining of growing up in such a radical society, in such a gender-segregated society, is that I felt very, it was very clear to me which side of the wall that separates man and woman, both physically and metaphorically, which side I belong at. Until she was about 20 years old, Abby Stein didn't know the term transgender, let alone know that other transgender people existed. I come from a very gender-segregated society. I come from a really small family of 12 siblings. I have eight sisters and four brothers. My mom comes from a family of eight. My dad comes from a family of 10. And I grew up in the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jewish community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. You are about to hear the story of an activist, author, model, and former rabbi, Abby Stein. These labels, however, don't fully capture the nuances and many inflections of Abby's life, not even close. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action on the issues that you care about most in your own community. And together, to help create a better world. It wasn't just that we were not allowed to listen to radio or watch TV or even have TV at home or watch movies or listen to pop music. It was that we didn't even know that most of these existed. That's the extent to how sheltered we were. It wasn't that, oh, there's this cool TV show on here called Friends, but we are not allowed to watch it because it's not religious and not kosher enough. It was, friends, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Abby Stein was born in Brooklyn, New York. But according to Abby, it seemed more like living in 18th century Eastern Europe. She was raised in a Hasidic community and she was the first son in a family of rabbis. Hasidism is a conservative Jewish religious group. It means the pious one in Hebrew. It was a movement that gained popularity in 1800s and spread rapidly within Eastern Europe. Hasidism is a subgroup within ultra-Orthodox Judaism, and it's noted for its religious conservatism and social seclusion. Hostilities will end officially At one minute after midnight tonight, Tuesday, the 8th of May. It was after World War II when Hasidic Jews migrated to countries like Canada, America, Australia, and Western Europe. They moved into cities including New York. In Williamsburg alone, there are over 50,000 Hasidic Jews. When you're in the area, they're the ones you might see walking around on the streets. Men with beards and large hats, wearing long black garb or women wearing scarves, wigs, and modest clothing. Yiddish was the only language that we spoke at home, the only language that we spoke at school, the only language at synagogues other when we prayed in Hebrew. The most advanced English class that we had was about a third grade level, but you've got to realize not a third grade level in a U.S. public school, but a third grade level in a school where the language that you speak is not English. So forget about the grammar and everything else. We just simply couldn't speak the language. 
we didn't have any general education whatsoever. Uh, we never studied any science, social studies, U.S. history, anything like that simply didn't exist. But apart from not learning English and being secluded from the modern world, Abby also grew up in an extremely gender-segregated community. Everything was separated by gender. I'm talking like preschools in Williamsburg are divided by gender. Boys and girls who are first cousins are told not to play with each other and so on. Until I got married, I never had an actual conversation other than buying something at the store, but an actual intense conversation with someone who was being raised as a girl in the Hasidic community, other than my siblings, aunts, grandparents, and so on. While she was completely sheltered from outside influences, Abby said that she had a relatively positive childhood. She was the sixth child out of 13. As far as my family went, and specifically relatively within the Hasidic community, my parents were loving. We had a warm and amazing home. The only part that I do sometimes feel that I miss our family, and specifically uh, whatever Friday night Shabbat dinner or holidays at my parents' house. Jews observe Shabbat, a holiday which begins right before sunset from Friday until Saturday evening. My mom is an amazing cook. My mom is an angel as a whole. I'm not going to talk about my dad. I don't have such positive opinions about him sometimes, but my, my mom is, is, is an angel, literally in every sense of the word, and also an amazing, amazing chef. And I only have like these amazing and sweet memories growing up. In this conservative Jewish community, it's common to be engaged by the age of 18. And some even at 16. But all of us were engaged or married at 18. Marriages are all arranged. And by arranged, I don't mean that couples are set up and they go on dates. By arranged, I mean there's a matchmaker who reaches out to the parents first and never goes to the actual couple, unless if it's a second or third marriage. But a first marriage when they're teenagers, it goes to the parents. And then most of the negotiations happens between the parents. How are the couples going to dress and where are they going to live? In Abby's family, you traditionally met with your would-be spouse very briefly. And then you meet the next time, either the night before the wedding or at the wedding. And that night you were supposed to do it, so to speak, with someone that you don't know. Two people who most likely have never had any in-length conversations with someone who was being raised in the opposite gender um, other than their own siblings and family. Abby says if you're a boy raised in the Hasidic community, you pretty much follow the same structure. You get a haircut at age three. At age 12 or 13, you have your bar mitzvah. At age 17, 18, you get engaged. And then you get married. From the outside, Abby checked all the boxes. There were times when I was fantasizing being reborn as a woman. There was times that I was fantasizing about uh, being a girl boot camp. There was times that I was fantasizing about doing a full body transplant medically or when I was having a prayer that I want to wake up as a girl and so on. It constantly had different ways of manifesting itself. I didn't actually get to physically explore it until around after the time I was married. I got to like sneak around, whatever it was, the underwear, which I know sounds like a stereotype, but at that time for me, anything that I could do physically was a really big deal. At some point, Abby tried to get rid of her thoughts, this sort of longing to be reborn as a woman. There was also a small part of me that was like trying to deal with my identity. And I always had these thoughts that if I'm doing something, maybe everything is going to go away. You know what we call praying the gay away, so to speak. And I'm like, maybe if I do X, Y, and Z, it's going to go away. Abby herself had not encountered transgender people or anyone from the LGBTQ community for that matter. LGBTQ stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning, or queer. 
and was the term used to replace the term gay in reference to the LGBT community beginning in the mid to late 1980s. When people come out within their Jewish community, wherever that Jewish community falls along Jewish denominational lines or political lines, um, it is very common still for people not to feel a full sense of belonging, a full sense of embrace. That's Edith Klein. She's the president and CEO of Keshet, a national organization for LGBTQ equality in Jewish life. It is very common for people to feel othered, for people to feel some sense of isolation, of marginalization, some sense that this isn't who you are supposed to be, and some experience of not feeling fully seen and acknowledged within that community. From 2010 and the years that followed, Edith said that there's been an acceleration of LGBTQ equality. We've seen these advances through the legalization of same-sex marriage in some states across the United States, as well as gender and sexuality alliances in schools. Very sadly, really starting in late 2016 after the last presidential election and increasing significantly in the three years since then, um, we have seen bullies really feeling emboldened and expressing that they feel emboldened because of who is in the Oval Office. We certainly hear from our teens that they feel more vulnerable as Jews and feel more vulnerable than just a few years ago to expressions of anti-Semitism. And we hear from them that they feel more vulnerable as queer people to expressions of homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. Over the years, discrimination against Jews belonging to the LGBTQ community has manifested in different ways. There was a time years ago when someone who was a Jew came out, whether it was as gay or bisexual or transgender or anything that was not cisgender and heterosexual, that they were asked to make a choice between being a part of the Jewish community in any way and living their truth. It's increasingly rare that people are asked to make those kinds of choices. Um, I mean, I came out in 1993 when I was a senior in college, and I wasn't asked to make a choice, but some people within my college's Jewish community conveyed to me that they didn't think I should be allowed to be a leader in my community. In a fundamentalist religious community such as the one Abby belonged to, it's hard to express one's whole self. But unfortunately, this suppression goes beyond religious lines. People who identify as LGBTQI may still feel like they don't belong in spaces where they want to thrive and simply live their everyday lives. A lot of it has to do with assumptions and lack of education. But I think in general, if you want to talk about the community without anything specific. That's Abby again. I use LGBTQ and I think that is usually a safe bet. Unless someone identifies with it, try to avoid the word transsexual for many different reasons. Uh, never call anyone transvestite, literally, unless they told you that that's how they identified. To a lot of people, that comes with a lot of terrible connotations. Don't assume the gender identity based on their sexual identity. Normalizing pronoun use, that's so, so important. And what I mean by that, even if you're sitting in a room and you know that every single person in that room identifies as a cisgender and hypothetically straight person, Ask people's pronouns if you don't know. Never assume people's pronouns. Apart from assumptions, Abby said that people often conflate gender and sexuality. What your gender identity is and what your sexuality is have nothing to do with each other. 
you can be a trans woman who is straight, bi, gay, lesbian, queer, pansexual, demisexual. It has nothing to do. And I, and I think the way that I like to describe it a lot is gender is who do you want to be? Sexuality is who do you want the other person to be? And who you want to be doesn't affect who you want the other person to be. When it comes to her gender identity, Abby had her own epiphany. I remember from a really young age, realizing that everyone around me think that I was a boy. And I'm saying it in that way because people ask me, oh, when did you realize that you identify as a girl? And I'm like, that's the wrong question. Because I never realized I'm identifying as a girl. My realization was that everyone around me thinks that I'm a boy. In some twisted way, the silver lining of growing up in such a radical society, in such a gender-segregated society, is that I felt very, it was very clear to me which side of the wall that separates man and woman, both physically and metaphorically, which side I belong at. It wasn't until 2011 when Abby learned that transgender people existed. I was sitting in a bathroom because that's how I got online for the first time because one of the things that the Hasidic community is fighting is the internet. I know it sounds crazy that people are in the 21st century are fighting the internet, but that's a reality in the Hasidic community. She got her hands on a friend's tablet. And inside a unisex bathroom in a mall searched whether a boy could turn into a girl in Hebrew. This was only a few days after Abby's son was born. When I was 20, I was at a point in my life where I had almost given up. I say it sometimes, gender was punching me in the face. And I remember the first time holding my son and like looking him in the eyes and saying like, I want to make sure that you get the best life possible. And then thinking, how can I say that or do that if I am not living my best life? I'm a big believer of that it's impossible to be a family member if there's no you. I know it sounds sometimes selfish, but we have to take care of ourselves before we can take care of anyone around us. And that is very important to me. And I'm like, how can I do that if I don't even know who I am? A few years after learning about transgender people, Abby left her home and her community to live as a transgender woman. It was the only way to make sense of it, the only thing that made sense to me. And now suddenly realizing that I'm not alone was a feeling of, being lost in a forest and thinking you're never going to get out and suddenly realizing there is this city of a few million people right next to you who are there to help you and support you, but at the same time being terrified of what it means to actually do that. That continued until like my second semester in college when I had to like tell myself, and I think the hardest part for me and for so many other people is actually not just coming out to ourselves. I think a lot of us know who we are from a young age, but telling ourselves that you deserve to try to make your life better. When you're looking at the ability of a trans person to move through life, to get a job, you know, drive a car, get a license to drive to a job, you know, graduate from school, access healthcare, go to a hospital, all of those things, at some point, right, the person needs to show identification documents. That's Zian Chem, a coordinator and researcher at the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex Association in Switzerland. Also when people are traveling, like crossing borders, you're showing an identity document. Nowadays, you know, ID documents are absolutely paramount. Zan says the part about your legal identity feeds very often into the criminalization of those in the LGBTQ community. You know, in 69 countries in the world at the moment, 
same-sex conduct, same-sex activity, both between people who are legally classified as men as well as people who are legally classified as women, is still illegal in the world today. A lot of trans people get caught up in the criminalization of same-sex activity. So in a country which, for example, has something in its penal code that says that same-sex activity between two men is prohibited, otherwise there's a jail sentence of up to two years or a fine, if a trans woman you know, is unable to change their gender marker and they're in a relationship with someone else who also has a male gender document, you know, the police can come in and arrest them and charge them based on that penal code, based on that criminalization of supposedly homosexual men when it's actually a trans woman, for example, in that case. Today, LGBTQ individuals are still the largest target of hate speech and violence. The Trans Murder Monitoring Project, which collects reports of homicides of transgender persons, reports 1,612 murders in 62 countries between 2008 and 2014, equivalent to a killing every two days. Crimes that are meant not only to break bones, but to break spirits. Not only to inflict harm, but to instill fear. You understand that the rights afforded every citizen under our Constitution mean nothing if we do not protect those rights, both from unjust laws and violent acts. According to the FBI's hate crime statistics report in the United States in 2018, more than 1,300 reported hate crimes, that's nearly one in every five, stemmed from anti-LGBTQ bias. I have no idea why, who probably reshared my post, but I got about 10 messages from very clear, like from openly declared white nationalists, white supremacists, attacking me both for being trans and being Jewish. And it almost always, it's almost like the same people who are transphobic also tend to be anti-Semitic. Shocker, who knew? And it's the same with so many other things. Abby says awareness and education are so critical to move forward. We need to allocate so many more resources. I would wish to see more money attached to it, more domestic violence, shelters, We need to totally redo and reform our system when it comes to sex work because so many of these trans women of color that the government has such a strong hand in demonizing them. Forget about the fact of putting any trans woman in a male's prison, but specifically with trans women of color where so much violence happens. Policies and allocation of resources are extremely important. But for us as individuals who are not active or who look at the LGBT community from the outside, there's also a lot of learning and unlearning to do. How can someone navigate kind of learning more without being offensive? Because I think that's on a lot of people's minds that want to learn more, but just don't feel comfortable even having these conversations. Um, You know, I always say that, you know, for me, all engagement that is in good faith is great. That's a did again. Not everyone feels that way. You know, there are queer people out there, just like there are people of all marginalized identities out there who don't feel at ease with kind of playing ground for other people to experiment and learn. You know, and that's valid too. You know, what I say to people, you know, in our work, what I say to people who say, you know, I hear LGBTQ, sometimes I hear other letters, like I don't understand all these terms, like where do I even start? You know, I you know, walk them through, like, well, let's talk about, like, what that means and how that plays out kind of as your sexual orientation. Let's talk about that category and understand what that means. And then separately, let's talk about gender identity. Let's talk about 
what it means to kind of feel internally that you are a gender, that you are a man or a woman or another gender altogether. So it's about, you know, walking through the terms. It's about telling stories of real people to help illustrate what these terms mean and how they play out in real people's lives. And it's about telling people it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to try out saying something and not necessarily get it right. Um, it's okay to ask people for permission. You know, it's okay to say, I have some questions about your life. Are you comfortable with my asking? Conversations that come from a place of compassion cannot be underestimated. Conversations fuel awareness. In telling her story, Abby is able to encourage others to share their own. The last four years in my life have been the best ever, but not just the best ever as in it's good. It's the best ever as in I could have never imagined that it would be whatever it is, the amazing relationships, the communities, the travel, the thousands of stories and people that I get to engage with. Apart from speaking and actively engaging her community, Abby chronicled her journey in a memoir titled Becoming Eve, which was released in November 2019. Thankfully, I haven't struggled with depression since I came out. And I've taken on some things to make sure that I can keep up with a positivity in my life. But just like if I ever do feel down, like I get mood swings, it's just like a day, you know, you wake up and you're like, oh my God, there's so much bad things. And I, I do get hate online sometimes, but I just look at the positive side. People are like, oh my God, you're doing so much and like you sound so selfless. And I'm like, nope, that's wrong. It's not selfless. And I think it's very important for people to know that activism doesn't have to be selfless because we can gain so much from it. We hope that while this podcast made you realize how much work we have to do to ensure that we live in a world full of justice and love for all, that we also have many amazing people globally at the front lines of fighting for equality. Love is love. As Abby reminds us, we are all born with human dignity. And we strive to create a world where policies, laws, social norms, and societal values ensure that that human dignity is maintained. We invite you to join our global movement and take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. Become an ally and an advocate. Look up ways to support organizations in your community fighting for equal rights. Many young teens and adults become homeless after coming out to their families. Look up local shelters and NGOs working with youth that need support and community. Lastly, advocate for policies that honor human rights. Learn more about policies in your city, state, and country, and add your voice to demand better laws and policies to defend and protect equal rights for all. You have the power to inspire real change. Use your voice and help create a better world for all of us. Before we go, I'd like to thank our experts, Edith Klein and Jan Chem, who contributed to this episode. Check out the links to our resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like our show, please rate us and leave us a review to encourage more people to tune in. You can also follow us on social media at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. 
Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This season is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. While this podcast series is produced in collaboration with our partners, The Elders did not exercise any editorial discretion on this episode. Our executive producer is Camille Laurente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producers Diana Galbraith and our research lead is Martina Vanat. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again on our next episode. <laughs>